LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host, Greg Moffat, and my guest today is Mitch Horowitz, who joins us to discuss his book, The Miracle Club, How Thoughts Become Reality. Following in the footsteps of a little-known group of esoteric seekers from the late 19th century who called themselves the Miracle Club, Mitch Horowitz shows that the spiritual wish-fulfillment practices known as the Law of Attraction, Positive Thinking, The Secret, and The Science of Getting Rich actually work. Weaving these ideas together into a concise, clear formula, with real-life examples of success, he reveals how your thoughts can impact reality and make things happen. Horowitz explains how we each possess a creative agency to determine and reshape our lives. He shows how thinking in a directed, highly focused and emotionally charged manner expands our capacity to perceive and transform events and allows us to surpass ordinary boundaries of time and space. He explains what works and what doesn't, illuminating why and how events bend to our thoughts. Along the way, we also consider synchronicity and psychic powers and the possible mechanics behind such phenomena. If time and space are not what they appear to be, but are in fact non-linear and malleable, then the creative power of mind and thought in shaping reality increasingly seems not only possible, but inevitable. The inescapable conclusion is that there is a non-material realm which interacts with and affects the material world. Consciously or unconsciously, in each and every moment, we are steering the course of our lives with our intentions, our desires, our emotions. Individually and collectively, the implications of this are vast. From the personal to the planetary, what we think matters. Hello and welcome, Mitch, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Good to be here, man. Thank you. Today, Mitch, we're going to be discussing a book of yours. It's been out for some time. It's entitled The Miracle Club, How Thoughts Become Reality. Before we dive into that, just tell listeners a little bit about your background and your work in general. Sure. I'm a historian of alternative spirituality, and The Miracle Club was really a departure for me because it's probably the first book I've written that's strictly practical in nature. It, it has historical episodes, and I trace the origin of some of the ideas behind our contemporary metaphysics, but primarily I wanted to explore the methods and the techniques that I use in my own spiritual search, particularly relating to mind power, new thought, and uh, thought causation. Well, what you referred to there as mind power, new thought, and thought causation, other people will know these by different names. It may be the ubiquitous positive thinking, uh, maybe the fashionable art of manifesting. 
Um, but the idea, the big idea, basically, our thoughts are somehow causative, that they contribute towards creating our reality. And historically, uh, many thinkers and schools of thought have shared the same basic concept, the same basic understanding. And the positive mind metaphysics that you write and speak about is essentially the current manifestation, pardon the pun, of new thought, a sort of modern strain. If uh, someone says to you, Mitch, what is new thought? What's your response? Well, new thought is a principle that probably goes back to the mid to late 19th century, which holds that your thoughts create your reality in the most concrete sense. And people have different conceptions of how that works, whether it's psychological, whether it's metaphysical, and to what extent this is true. If you talk to some people, they will assert that everything is mental, that the, the universe lives under a law of mentality. Others will suggest, and I'm probably more in this camp, that it's still quite mysterious uh, to what extent or to what degree our thoughts shape reality, but I believe very strongly that some degree of what happens to us in the most concrete sense is based in our mentality, in our emotions. I do believe that this is a, a metaphysical truth that we live under, but I believe that we live under many laws and forces, which is why it gets complicated to talk about whether there's one overall mental super law or whether this law of mentation is in the mix and is one among many different laws and forces that we experience. Well, I find myself agreeing to a greater or lesser extent with both the basic positions there, uh, depending on how I'm thinking and feeling on any given day. I do have a strong tendency towards idealism. However, I still feel that if we then say that reality is somehow like a dream and we've simply woken up within it, you know, the universe being entirely mental, well, in within that dream, people are still living and dying and loving and hating and things are being created and destroyed, if you see what I mean. It's yes. a bit like when you, have a, when you fall asleep at night and have a dream. I used to be told when I would wake up as a child that, oh, it's just a dream, it's not real. And I said, well, it felt pretty damn real at the time. So even if, there, even if the universe is mental... I think that what you and I are engaging in in our daily lives, this everything about what we're experiencing, even within mind, has its own flavor and that we're, we're detached from mind at large, if you want to put it like that. So that what I'm trying to say is that we cannot disregard everything that happens when we wake up in the morning, uh, the people we meet, the things we do, the places we go, plans we might make. Whatever yes. the ultimate ground of reality is, I still think there's something going on here that we can play with. Yes, I agree. And it's very interesting, as you referenced, we, we live and die within this dream, if we could put it in those terms. We experience physical decline and suffering within this dream. I used to say that we live under many laws and forces, but I've changed that to say that we experience many laws and forces. I believe it's, it's very, very possible, and it could be entirely defensible, that the universe is based in consciousness or in awareness. But even within that awareness that may be governing everything we call reality, we still function within the experience of a physical framework, which involves death, which involves physical decline. And it's fascinating to consider the question of whether we live under a serial reality, so to speak, whether we live within an infinitude of possibilities. And there may be all kinds of alternative possibilities. It may be that death is kind of a localized measurement, so to speak, not much different from what goes on 
in a particle laboratory where the particles are in a wave state or in a state of superposition and only are localized and measurable and experiential when some sentient observer decides to take a measurement. But nonetheless, we do experience these things, of course. And it's probably only very, very rare moments of awareness when we experience ourselves, as William Blake referenced, as being infinite beings, beings who are not bound by any one reality. But those moments come and go very fleetingly, and they can be very few over the course of a lifetime. Most of the time, we are going to experience different laws and forces, and we have to accept that if you hit your toe on a table, you're going to experience pain. Uh, there are very, very few exceptions in the human record to that simple fact. So our experiences are such that we still have to acknowledge pain, suffering, demise, physical decline, sometimes on a mass scale. And yet, within that paradigm, I think we also, as individuals and as a social order that's capable of researching these things, something we might want to talk about later, we we experience proof either in the form of testimony and personal experience or in the form of placebo studies, psychical research, neuroplasticity, quantum mechanics that also demonstrate that awareness is a decisive factor in what happens to us and what we experience. Well, yeah, that sort of realization born out of particularly recent research that you, you've just mentioned there, I think that's increasingly people are, are kind of waking up to that and they're asking questions about the nature of reality. Now, you can be doing that within still a fairly strict materialist paradigm or certainly from a materialist yes. background. You, you can almost set aside the very big picture metaphysics we were talking about a moment ago. So, and where your book is, aside from the history of new thought, but as a practical guide, where it seems to be kind of pitched is to those people who are in that sort of twilight zone and is there something to this because I've had experiences or I have intuitions and feelings and I just think there's something else going on here and yes. if that's the case can I begin to observe it consciously can I do anything with it does it make any difference to anything yeah it's it's fascinating probably the field of study today that best demonstrates this hang up that we have in our culture and that we experience as individuals between materialism and metaphysics is neuroplasticity. The field of neuroplasticity, which has been with us for probably about 20 years or so, demonstrates through brain scans that your sustained thoughts over a period of time will actually change the chemistry of your brain. The, the, the neural pathways through which electrical impulses travel in your brain will alter based upon the thoughts you hold. And this has been demonstrated in a very wide array of experiments in different university settings. And one of the founders of the field of neuroplasticity is a, a research psychologist at UCLA named Jeffrey Schwartz. And Schwartz makes the wonderful observation that no one challenges his data. No one challenges the fact that if you take an individual who is experiencing an addiction or who is experiencing obsessive compulsive disorder and you work with that individual to teach him or her how to redirect thought and that over a period of time this this program of redirected thought will show up on on brain scans you will see a change an alteration in the individual's neural pathways away from say 
behaviors that might be associated with OCD or addiction or certain ritualistic kinds of behaviors and towards different behaviors that are easier for the individual to live with. No one questions that data. But what Schwartz, uh, to his great credit, points out is that at the same time, almost no one in the mainstream is willing to deal with the implications of that data because that data completely upends materialism in a certain sense. It, 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 it shows, it measurably demonstrates things are happening that are not supposed to happen. Uh, we were raised, most of us, we were educated, most of us, to believe that thought is a localized phenomenon, that thought is produced by this bodily organ called the brain, and that once the brain is gone, thought also is gone, just like bubbles in a glass of carbonated water disappear if the water loses its carbon or if the water is gone. That's how we were largely taught here in the West to think about the phenomenon of the mind. But what his data and the data of other researchers shows is that that equation actually can be upended because what we're seeing in neuroplasticity is actual mind over matter. It's literal mind over matter. And it can't be, it seems to me, that that's just an isolated situation. A law, in order to be a law, must be universal or must at least have universal implications. So if thoughts are altering the extremely delicate chemistry and cellular makeup of the brain, that places us before this enormous challenge, this enormous upending of how thought is supposed to work. And while no one questions the data, very few people deal with the implications of the data. So that's one example among many, without even getting into the testimony of mystics and seekers, that show our thoughts are altering our concrete experience. They're altering our very biology. Well, it's so like the placebo effect is a good example as well that many people will be very familiar with. And you'll hear people in the medical profession saying, talking about some seemingly miraculous recovery or whatever. I mean, oh, it's just a placebo effect. Exactly. Um, you know, as if the sugar pill actually did something, you know, whereas what it actually is, as you say, is further um, evidence, if you want to even put single quotes around that for the time being, of mind over matter. Yes. And it's funny, what our, uh, our favorite expression here in the West is, it's just this or it's nothing but that, as if we can get a handle on something by explaining the, the entire phenomenon by focusing on one aspect of it that we've that we've gleaned without acknowledging that there may be dozens of other aspects that are going on that we haven't even begun to understand. For example, you'll see materialists make the case that the so-called placebo effect is nothing but the release of endorphins in the body. That may be one thing that's going on, but we don't have the slightest idea that that's the only thing that's going on. It may be that the release of endorphins and a whole variety of other things is what the mental act looks like in the body, is is even what the religious appeal may look like in the body. But the fact that we've gleaned maybe one aspect of what's going on should not lead us to conclude that we know everything that's going on. Life tends to be a complexity of things. That's one of the reasons, I think, why people sometimes find therapy so frustrating, because in therapy we're taught, at least in traditional therapy, that there are antecedents to our behaviors, that something that happened in our childhood conditions or something physical or childhood traumas are the kind of turnkey behind how we behave as adults. But what people in therapy often come to suspect, and I think quite rightly, 
and it can be frustrating as well, is that there are a whole complexity of reasons behind our psychology. And once you've identified one, it doesn't become this magic bullet that suddenly solves the problem or gives you full insight. It's one factor within a complexity of factors. So when we identify something that's going on within the placebo effect, which is much more than the, re the release of endorphins, I mean, w we can talk about this further. We've seen the placebo effect actually being effective in matters of surgery. We've seen the placebo effect being uh, present in, in such an incredible diversity of ways we really are not capable yet of understanding what's happening and to rush to close the door and say it's just this or it's just that is almost insisting that we don't want to look at material that questions uh, materialist philosophy and yet materialist philosophy simply no longer covers the, the basis of life. It doesn't work. It doesn't work anymore in the 21st century. So we have to be willing to look at and consider the question of so-called uh, extra-physical causes. Oh, well, a couple of brief things from what you said. We do have a tendency as a, a society to name things, you know, particularly in science, to name things uh, as a way of supposedly explaining them. So, well, we do know what it is. It's dark matter. Right, but, exactly. but, you know, or we, <laughs> String we, theory. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Higgs, Higgs boson, you know, we know what it is. Uh, and also... The, as far as the brain, you know, you were talking about a re release of endorphins with the placebo effect. You'll also get, you know, maybe out of body experiences, near death experiences, psychic phenomena, and people in um, scanners and they say, oh, look, there's brain activity here. This correlates with this experience. Yes. This, so therefore, somehow that's the cause. The brain yes. activity is the cause of the phenomenon. Yes. You know, we, we have a lust to pin names on things in the West and then go back to sleep. And even the great Carl Jung, who I respect enormously and whose research and ideas, I think, are coming into a, a kind of a new renaissance in the 21st century, even he engaged in this. If you read Jung's wonderful essay, Synchronicity, ultimately, he uses the term synchronicity as kind of a pass. He doesn't really attempt to explain what this a-causal phenomena is once he's named it, once he's categorized it. And we all owe him a great debt for at least providing us with a language to talk about these things. But if one reads his essay, Synchronicity, carefully, you'll see he never really attempts to explain the phenomenon. He just he identifies it. He puts a name on it. So we get kind of comfortable, at least some of us, saying that something is a synchronicity without really going much further and asking, well, gee, what in the world could be going on? Why, why should there be any synchronistic activity happening at all? What, what, what could be the theory behind that? What could be the delivery mechanism behind that? That's the great question that I believe our generation faces. And one of the things I attempt to do in the Miracle Club is arrive at a theory of positive thinking, so to speak, a theory of why any kind of thought causation should be occurring at all. My theory may be entirely wrong, but I think we have to start to at least raise questions about delivery systems and not just get too comfortable with our language, you know, like manifest or synchronicity or things like that. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with coming up with a term you know, on the road to exploring and potentially maybe explaining something that's useful. The synchronicity is useful because we could say, well, what do you mean by that? And, you know, Jung said this and this and other people identified with it. Well, yes, that, that makes sense. Doesn't explain it, but it's, it doesn't explain it. It right. gets, gets us on the road to uh, maybe doing that. We can then use that term to 
group together experiences perhaps or phenomena uh, and go from there. And there may be some things that are just utterly ineffable and that are, yes. there are unexplainable. But what some of your work particularly gets into is that some of the things that, you know, even no matter where you're coming from on this, that you regard as, well, that's, if that is occurring, there's no way we can understand it actually. And I had Dean Radin on recently. If you start to apply mm -hmm. rigorous scientific method to this, as has been done for quite some time now, um, but people are turning away from the implications, if not the data, some of this is beginning to take shape in a scientific a context, you know, and, yes. I, and this is one of the things that drew me to work like yours and ultimately to your work is I was always wondering psychic phenomena, something I've been interested in for a long time. Is there a mechanism behind this? Yes. And now, well, that's, that's what you get to at the end, at the end of your book, actually. You've raised a great point. One of my great intellectual heroes is the ESP researcher J.B. Ryan. And J.B. Ryan, as some of your listeners know, uh, started one of America's first scholarly parapsychological labs at Duke University in the early 1930s. And Ryan's great contribution to human understanding is that he amassed huge amounts of statistical data that demonstrated beyond any question that some kind of anomalous transfer of information can be tracked in laboratory settings, which he referred to as ESP. And that's an umbrella term under which falls telepathy, precognition, and so forth. And there was a Science Foundation executive uh, here in the U.S. who was guardedly sympathetic of Ryan's, towards Ryan's research. And he said to him in a series of letters in the 1960s, and I, I talk about some of this in the Miracle Club, he said, look, you know, the data that you've assembled is unimpeachable, but it's never going to be accepted unless you come into some theory of delivery, some theory of how this is occurring. How can an individual glean order uh, within a randomly shuffled deck of cards? How can an individual consistently score a higher than guess rate uh, on a deck of cards. How can individuals seemingly be able to transfer information back and forth by something we call telepathy? And Ryan, giant though he was, and he really was a tremendous intellectual giant and a man of great integrity, he ultimately came to conclude that that wasn't his job, that his job was to gather evidence and that if he gathered sufficient evidence, the scientific community would be unable to deny his research, but he was a person of greater integrity, I think, than his critics. And his critics won the day, in a sense. They, they just rejected his data. They kept absurdly trying to poke holes in it. They would recycle and reissue challenges that had long since been settled. And they prevailed to the extent that the Rhine Research Lab is no longer part of Duke University. There are very, very few academic research labs uh, in the uh, parapsychological research labs in the U.S. The situation may be a little bit better in the U.K., but, but to that extent, the critics won. And here in the U.S., at least, we've probably lost about a generation of progress in ESP research because of that fact. People like Dean Graydon are doing extraordinary research with independent funding. So I, I think it's it's a tragedy of Ryan's career tremendous figure though he was that he never took up that challenge to arrive at a delivery mechanism but 
figures like Dean are, are making that effort today. As a layperson, I'm making that effort today. And I, I do think we have to, our generation has to begin to arrive at theories. Uh, we may be wrong, but we have to at least begin to do more than amass testimony and statistics, which Ryan really did so exhaustively, and, and, and begin to come up with reasons why this might be occurring. Because the fact that it is occurring is just beyond question, which doesn't mean that the academic establishment here in the U.S. will not continue to question it. I, I mean, we have a limitless capacity to close our ears and eyes to data that we don't like or data that's that's grossly inconvenient because it contradicts the data on, uh, on which we based other experiments. So to a very great extent, Ryan's work is still not accepted uh, here in the U.S., even though his statistical analyses have been juried and gone over with much greater uh, critique and scrutiny than the, the studies upon which we base some of our most commonly ingested pharmaceuticals. Uh, Ryan's work is unimpeachable, and it's, it's going to carry the day, although it has not yet been accepted. But I think that regardless of, of its having not been accepted within the mainstream, it's so unimpeachable that most parapsychologists, most serious parapsychologists will say, thanks to Ryan, we have already demonstrated the existence of an ESP effect. Now we have to try to take that further and figure out what's going on, try to theorize a delivery mechanism. Well, the situation's a little bit like Galileo and his invitation to look through the telescope. Exactly. Or in John, John Carpenter's They Live, you know, you've ever seen that? And he's, the guy's like, put on the damn sunglasses, you know, and he's just refusing to look through them to see what. Refusing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So to pull a couple of, I think these are quotes are certainly paraphrasing your book. Um, as far as skeptics go and these phenomena, there is no curiosity to approach the thing being judged. Yes. And also that detractors feel no obligation to read or test drive before promulgating an opinion. And I've always wondered about skeptics in general, whether they be professional or armchair, is when it comes to this compelling data, these compelling results, what is it? There's going to be a range of things, but what is it that makes it so difficult to think about the implications or even sometimes to look at results and to put two and two together, you know, join the dots with these things? It can't just be tenure and grants and professional reputation there must be in some cases something deeper than that uh, yes what opinion uh what are opinions have you come to on that over the years it's a good question i've often reflected on that myself and i've asked myself what fissure what break is there in human nature that keeps critics or skeptics from engaging this material in a more constructive way it's been a very tough question for me. I was having a debate on social media with an anthropologist at the University of Kansas, and he was waving off all evidence of psychical research. And at a certain point in our exchange, I began to make reference to a series of experiments from the 1970s and 80s called the Gonsfeld experiments. Gonsfeld is German for open field, and these experiments were conducted largely by a man named Charles Onerton, who's now deceased, and he was something of a protege to Ryan. They didn't always get along, but Honerton was kind of a protege. And these experiments were absolutely fascinating. They demonstrated statistically that if you could place an individual in a setting of comfortable sensory deprivation, almost like the state that you're in when you're hovering between 
wakefulness and sleep, which sleep researchers called the hypnagogic state. That seemed to be some sort of prime time for ESP activity, that if you could block out all the sensory pollution that we experience during our waking hours, but but still keep an individual in a state of cognition where they haven't slipped off into sleep. Uh, they, they demonstrated, various individuals demonstrated an above average ability to receive images uh, mentally in some sort of anomalous way. And, and Honerton co-authored a paper on this topic in the mid-1990s with an avowed skeptic named Ray Hyman, who was a professor of psychology emeritus at the University of Oregon. And Hyman uh, co-wrote with uh, Honerton that he, he agreed, he agreed that these experiments stood up statistically, that the data was not polluted. He didn't agree with the ESP thesis. But he did agree that more study was warranted, which to me is a very constructive form of skepticism. If we can't agree that there's an ESP effect, let's at least agree that we have a question and we're going to keep studying it. And this was such a signature moment, and yet it didn't continue because Honerton died at a very young age. And Hyman, who has never disavowed this paper, went on to his different works of skepticism and, and other works besides that had nothing to do with ESP research. And as I was recounting this to my interlocutor from the University of Kansas, he acknowledged to me, he said to me, yes, yes, he knew about the Gonsfeld experiments and those were quite remarkable. And I said to him, then what on earth are we arguing about? You may disagree with me that there's such a thing as ESP, but if we both agree that this data stands up, then we should be collaborating. Why, what is this argument about? And, and yet with a few, you know, a few seconds tick by on the clock and he launches into some other, uh, dispute and, and, you know, leaving aside the fact that we just agreed. And I have to say, I really don't know what this quality in human nature is that the critics are unable to agree with you even when they agree with you i'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that you know what is that blockage well um i've thought a lot about this and i've come up with a lot of different ideas and some of them go together better than others but in general terms i think whether it's scientists or man in the street anybody almost all levels of society when we say society of course it's difficult to talk about that in, in simplistic global terms, but I quite yes. often mean, I'm quite often referring to or thinking about a materialist, you know, Western paradigm, the sort of that, uh, that you and I and, and many of the listeners here, you know, whether they're in North America or Canada or in Australia or in Western Europe will have grown up in and take to be all that there is that the scientific and industrial revolutions have led us to this particular way of viewing ourselves life, the universe, and everything in it, and that's not been fixed. It's a relatively new thing, but it feels like a very ancient thing to those, because our lives are so short. And so we do crave certainty. We see now today, particularly we're living in, in uncertain times, any threat that seems uh, that might upend society in some way, we we guard against, because yes. in uncertain times we crave certainty. And but what some people see is upending society. I would actually say, well, you mean transform society potentially. And that, of course, different ways of thinking about revolutionary ideas are, that's just something, you know, the way that humans think. But ultimately, 
I think that if it became obvious, as it seemed to be to uh, human beings in millennia gone by, let me put it in very simplistic terms, there's a, a material and a non-material field, or it may be a spectrum, and there's interaction that the world and reality is not just what we perceive in our five yes. senses, then that starts to open out into this realm where actions have consequences. Whatever scientific way you want to express ideas like karma, that we have responsibilities and that what we do somehow to quote uh, Maximus and Gladiator echoes in eternity. Yes. There are ripples. That's, and basically the universe is interconnected. Yes. And, and what you do affects something else. And all of these little nuggets of ideas I've just expressed, those are all drawn from basically ancient teachings, ancient, yes. um, ancient understandings of how the world works. So it would basically imply responsibility and uncertainty, and we don't really want either of those things. Yes, and and it would cut across a wide swath of our sciences. Uh, there's a reason institutionally why these ideas are rejected sometimes, which is that if you if you question the timeline, let's say, of the monuments of ancient Egypt, or if you uh, start talking about the presence of uh, UFOs and are they extraterrestrial or interdimensional, or if you start talking about mind causation, it's seen as undermining uh, that which we know. And people are profoundly hostile to and frightened of undermining that which we know, even if you seek to engage them in the discussion in a very constructive way, in a way that doesn't insist that you have to agree with my point of view, but just agree that there's a question there. I do find that critics in private will be a great deal more amenable to discussion than in public. I meet people all the time from mainstream media or mainstream science who will concede to me remarkable things in private that they would never consider in a journal article that they would never talk about Monday morning when they're back at work. So there is some wiggle room there. And I do think, I do think, for example, we have reached a point almost right now, almost, almost right at this moment in our intellectual culture where it has probably become embarrassing to intellectually dismiss the idea of UFOs, for example. I would say even six months ago, you could get away with that. You could get away with saying, don't talk to me about flying saucers. It's the same thing as unicorns. There's no serious way, it seems to me, to maintain that point of view. And I've even seen in the past six months or so columnists at the New York Times who would have written a column comparing flying saucers, so to speak, to unicorns, uh, who would not speak that way today because there there have been Pentagon files released, military files released, Navy files released uh, quite recently here in the U.S. that 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 demonstrate these sightings physically on radar and and that 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 use cockpit recordings of pilots professing complete shock at what they're witnessing. And I don't think it's intellectually plausible anymore in the U.S. to make fun of flying saucers, so to speak. So changes do come. Changes do come. And I would say that change is quite recent. So maybe we'll see something like that in our generation with respect to what we're talking about, this interplay between the world of awareness or consciousness and the physical world. On just a very small point, but that's what I believe the UFO phenomenon to be, that just the very interplay that you described, some form of it, because for a lot of people, 
they take UFO, which simply means unidentified flying object, and immediately equate it with a hard physical craft with little green men in it. Yes. I mean, that's just a, that's a point for another discussion, but I just wanted to say that I think that that phenomenon you're describing that is incre- increasingly emerging into mainstream awareness is part of us. We can, as many people have, we can connect that with some of the, the psychic phenomena that we're, we're talking about. Uh, yes. Okay, well, Mitch, for the, well, I suppose what will be the second half of our discussion, we should turn to, uh, I guess, the practical dimensions of your book. And uh, because you did say it was the first one that you'd written with this practical dimension really in mind. We'll talk a little bit about literally how thoughts become reality and maybe some of it will resonate with some of the listeners' daily experience, whether they are interested in any of this, have practiced any of it, or maybe they just, as I mentioned earlier, have an intuition that there's something else going on here beyond their five senses. I just want to share with you, because I've not really done this, how I came on this particular path of questioning the world around me and mm-hmm. everything that I seem to be intuiting that said there's more, you know, there's something beyond it, my five senses, and it's probably mo- yes. it's probably most of what there is. Um, yes, I'm fifty, so I'm we're a very similar age. I don't think there's any reason I'm uh, sort of covering that one up. We, you know, we've been oh. we've been. A, <laughs> I'm all for transparency. Yeah, we've been, <laughs> we've been around. I'm fifty-three. <laughs> we've been around the block a few times. So. Yeah. I started, I was interested in, uh, any sort of mysteries when I was a child. And back then there was a popular TV series called Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. Mm-hmm. Um, he followed it up with Arthur C. Clarke's Straight World of Strange Powers. That led me on to Colin Wilson and his book, The Occult, which is mm-hmm. w- way more than just a book about wizards and goblins and what have you. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. and so from there, I came through all sorts of different strands of literature and thinking, all of which in its own way was speaking to this idea of the interaction between mind and matter. It was all essentially saying the same thing. And I ended up probably, not ended up, but I passed through a phase probably about, well, whenever, shortly after The Secret was big, and I could never, that never really resonated resonated with me at all. But that sort of um, positive thinking was back in the, the media again in a big way at that time. Yes. Um, and then I just stumbled upon the work of uh, Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, from there, I actually found the work I preferred, which was uh, Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich. I loved that mm-hmm. book. And the edition that I found at that time, it said, New Restored Edition. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what do they mean by that? Then I, mm-hmm. f- I found out that for many decades, there'd been a sort of redacted version of Think and Grow Rich published with the quote-unquote metaphysical stuff removed. Yeah. So that was interesting in itself. But in the middle of all this, the first confirmatory experience that I had actually came to me probably in the late 80s when at the time I was reading book, essentially what you'd call a book of spellcraft. And it was a a practical manual about getting what you wanted. And I guess it was coming from a sort of Wiccan perspective. And I was was reading it just because it had, you know, interesting graphics on the cover. And I thought, oh, yeah, this is all fine. And for some reason, I thought... I'm going to try this because there was something that I wanted more than I could put into words. Yes. I wanted with every fiber of my being. Yes. So I, t- I took one of the formulas, which nothing sinister, by the way, but I took one of the, one of the formulas. Basically, it was, um, a fo- essentially it was a form of prayer, ritualized prayer in the spellcraft book. And I put everything into it because I, I, and I wasn't thinking about how this could work. Would it even work? Could it work? Why? Nothing of, not, no questions whatsoever. I just threw myself into it and 
the results came the wildest it was like whoa what a ride i can't believe this has happened it mm. was everything i asked for way beyond that and interesting for me and i always i always remembered this a bunch of stuff that i couldn't have foreseen and i got what i wanted but not for very long so mm. what i learned in all of this was this your thoughts can affect reality mm -hmm. but guard your thoughts Choose carefully, be clear in your attentions, bring the sort of honesty, integrity. So I learned a lot of lessons through that experience. And I didn't go back to anything like that activity for a very long time. Mm -hmm. But when mm -hmm. I eventually came round to, and I'm sorry, this is a long point, but when I Not eventually long. came round to new thought uh, a few years ago and what, you know, with uh, Napoleon Hill and what brought me to your work, I always went back to that time and I thought, you know, this works because mm -hmm. you, you, you put every your, every fiber of your being into this. It was the results were astounding, and I think I, I that's why I didn't go back to it for a while. I thought Sh this shit is real. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you've hit upon many important points. Uh, one of them is that you, your ceremony, your operations, your prayer, your affirmations were directed towards something that you wanted as dearly as breath itself. You wanted it with this absolute passionate commitment. And I think that's a vital ingredient. In fact, I've found that that is the foundational element to experimenting with mind metaphysics. You can't fool the emotions, and this material won't be trifled with. You have to be focused on something that you want with an emotional absoluteness. And it seems to me that if our emotionalized thoughts function as tools of selection, tools of measurement in a certain sense, which which have the possibility of localizing outcomes, not much different perhaps than the outcomes that get localized in a quantum lab when particles are being measured with exquisitely fine instrumentation. One of the methods that we as five sensory beings use to measure things, so to speak, or to perhaps make selections, and I favor the term selection more than manifestation, it, 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 uh, uh, it, it requires an emotional conviction. It won't, our instruments of selection uh, won't just avail themselves to us if we're trifling with something, saying, gee, let's see if I can imagine a rose appearing on my dining room table. If that thing you want with an exquisite passion, you may get somewhere. But if you're just using that as a kind of humdrum experiment, uh, the likelihood is you're not going to get anywhere. And J.B. Ryan made the observation in his own ESP experiments, and he he really tucked this away in a footnote, although it was a monumental observation. He found that an atmosphere of hopeful expectancy had to be present if he was going to get any results at all. That the individual, the subject that was being tested for ESP had to really feel that he or she had some skin in the game. And if there was boredom, if there was apathy, for whatever reason, maybe just because of physical exhaustion, nothing would happen. Whatever capacity we possess to select events seems to rest upon some kind of emotional decisiveness. That's the first step. It's profoundly important. 
And then there's this very interesting question of time interval. Sometimes things happen very quickly and sometimes things happen over very long stretches of time. And I've gotten more and more interested over the past few months in this question of time interval because I find that things that I'm experiencing today at the age of 53 comport just extraordinarily with some of my deepest fantasies that I held when I was very, very young, when I was age three, age four, whatever age you're at, when you really begin to retain memories, when you begin to consciously retain long-term memories. And there's just been this extraordinary symmetry. And I've been reminded uh, of something that Goethe said. There's a popular expression in our culture, careful what you wish for, you just might get it. That expression actually began in a different form with Goethe, who said, what you wish for when you're very young will come upon you in waves when you're old. So be careful, be careful. And lots of people would want to argue with that and say, well, gee, there are all kinds of things maybe that I wanted when I was young that I haven't come to experience. But I would challenge people before you rush to that conclusion, sit with it for a while, sit with it for a while, because you might discover, as I have, an uncanny symmetry between things that you fantasized about and you felt very strongly about as a very, very young child, even things that you experienced in your dreams, literally, as a very young child, and what you're experiencing today. I don't think Goethe was being casual when he made that statement. So I'm very interested in this question of time interval because sometimes I will experiment with thought causation and not get what I want. But other times I will look at a situation in my life and it is just uncannily congruent with things that I thought about when I was young, so much so that I cannot dismiss the congruency. So this question of time interval is, is also one that I'm very interested in. So if uh, listeners have been picking up on any of the points that you've been mentioning there and are maybe getting interested in this, like, oh, you know, there's something for me here. They may already have dipped their toes into what we could call the positive thinking or law of attraction scene. And again, applying this uh, line of thinking predominantly to the West, there are writers, speakers, gurus. The, the scene is awash with them, whether it is the secrets, pretty much everything published by Hay House. Um, mm -hmm. Eckhart Tolle must be one of the most popular spiritual teachers of recent years. He's reached out to millions of people. But mm -hmm. as you point out in your book, in many cases, uh, these individuals have not, I think this is a quote from you actually, have not provided Westerners with a satisfying response to materialism. And yes. many people in our society are rightfully rejecting blind consumerism. You don't deny materialism in your book. You've got some very interesting points in that, but people are waking up and feeling that this is not enough. You know, is this what I'm existing for? Uh, yes. In terms of finding something for people beyond just reading as many books as possible or listening to as many talks as possible, can you give any advice to, for people looking for something? Maybe they've got a stack of these publications and they've churned through a load of workshops and they don't feel they're any further forward. Uh, you know, what would, what would you say perhaps as a, you know, one or more nuggets of advice? The chief thing that I'd want to say is don't let any critic or any spiritual writing or any peer pressure rob you of what you sense you really want in life. Don't be embarrassed if, for example, your wishes tend to run in financial directions or 
your wishes may be run in the directions of some kind of career advancement or possession or something. I do think that one of the limitations of our popular spiritual literature in the West is that we have clipped and pasted Vedic ideas uh, that are really millennia old. And these Vedic ideas about non-attachment, non-identification, the illusion of the outer world, Maya, the illusion of the senses and so forth, they can, I think, sometimes tear Western seekers and, and Eastern seekers as well in two. They can rend us from our wishes, from our deepest desires, which may be quite sacred, which may be quite necessary. I believe very deeply in the creative impulse. I believe very deeply in generativity. I believe very deeply that somebody who wants something in life, yes, in some cases that wish might be concealing some sort of a deeper gap in their existence, but not always, not always. And I think that we have to be very honoring of our wishes and we have to be very mature about our wishes and be very self-honest with ourselves about what we really want. It could take us in very surprising directions. Unlocking what you want could work a revolution in your life. It could open up metaphysical opportunities to you that previously it seemed closed. So I, I gently caution people to be careful about getting into mindsets of non-attachment or non-identification because I think that those things can tear the Western seeker in two. It could be that what the individual wants, it could be critiqued as being materialist or something outer, that could be a form of expressiveness that cuts to the very core of that person's psyche. They, that person might have very good reasons for wanting what they do. And I want people to feel very much at liberty to be deeply, deeply disclosing to themselves about what they really want. They don't have to tell anybody. They don't have to ask anybody's permission or seek anyone's approbation. And it's often better not to because people, we love to judge one another and we love to kind of one-up one another in matters of understanding. And I, I believe that we, within the alternative spiritual culture, sometimes slip into a kind of catechism or a rote language ourselves where we'll describe something as coming from the personality versus coming from essence, or we'll describe something as being outer-focused or materialistic in nature, not really being the, the, real, um, the real true north of the spiritual search. And I'm not sure that's true at all. I think there's a great sacredness in human expressiveness. And if that expressiveness takes a material form, uh, that may be just right for the individual. I want people to really feel at liberty to ask themselves what they really want and to be unembarrassed about it. I don't think that's a formula for corruption because there is some sort of, I believe deeply, reciprocity in our world and we are responsible for maintaining a kind of reciprocity. So it's not up to me to tell somebody else what to do. Um, so I'm not, I'm not giving people license to take a go it alone approach. I mean, we pay for everything sooner or later, but I do want people to feel very at liberty to get in touch with what they really want. Yeah. So they, nothing wrong with the uh, monk on top of a mountain that I mentioned earlier, you know, meditating for decades. That's just may not be for everybody, but in terms of knowing what we want, many people they're used to being told what to want or what to aspire mm -hmm. to at the very least, whether that's coming from, 
their family upbringing, from peer yes. pressure, from wider society, from the, the media, from culture, from politicians. And some people think they've thought about it. I've known people who were doctors and lawyers. They thought they thought about it. And then at some point, they just threw it all away. And I says, no, I don't want to do this. <laughs> yes. And conversely, you know, there could be somebody, the monk sitting on a mountaintop and they say to himself, well, gee, I actually want to be a doctor or a lawyer. You know, I mean, it can cut in all these unusual ways if if you're really willing to live with what you desire without feeling any internal sense of pressure or, or inviting external pressure. Yeah. And I think we do have, we've been basically in a roundabout way talking about money there. And we do have yes. a lot of issues around that, don't we? Because Again, rightfully, that sort of unfettered capitalist greed that, you know, we've seen so much of in our culture. A lot of people are wanted to reject that for all sorts of reasons to do with their, their inner lives or just their, the outer world that they see around them. All the obvious downsides of making your life about that solely without any meaning or purpose behind it. Even when it comes to feeling that we deserve anything, you know, whether it's money or anything else, a lot of people have problems with that, don't they? Um, I, I haven't earned this. I don't deserve it. Why should I, you know, it's only little me. I've been told I'll never amount to anything. I'm not worth anything. Uh, that's just one of the many challenges when, it, when people come to try thinking their world differently, thinking their reality differently. And even a deep desire that they have may not equate to having money, for example. Mostly it yes. won't, but money is almost always needed, you know. So there's all these, it's a lot more complex and in one, in some ways, but also in other ways, a lot simpler than we imagine that it is. Yes. It's, it, money is always the, the snake in the garden on the spiritual path. Mm. And it's difficult to know. Where to put it? It, 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 probably, I would say more of our popular spiritual literature has been produced around money than any other topic, even though it's the snake in the garden, so to speak. And I think seekers, again, have to be deeply honest with themselves about what they want. If money really matters to you, there may be very, very good reasons for that. I mean, certainly money can do lots of good things. It can procure beauty, it can procure medical care, it can allow you to pay for somebody's education, what have you. And it's always been a fitful battle. You know, sometimes our popular literature will tell us, sure, make all the money you want, but don't be attached to it. And then that word attachment comes in again. And I don't know that that concept is necessarily universally applicable. All of our religions, they may hold great truth, they may hold such truth and such beauty that you want to fall to your knees in front of them. But regardless, all of our religions are man-made, so to speak. And all of them bear the time stamp of the culture that they came from. And the Vedic tradition, which is an extraordinary tradition, I fall to my knees in front of it. But it still must be observed that the Vedic tradition was formulated in a profoundly stratified society where it was almost as impossible to imagine vaulting beyond the caste that you were born into as it was walking the surface of another planet. And, and I think that the Hindu tradition, Buddhism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, they all were formulated in response to social conditions that the individual was facing. And we see this, for example, in the contradictory attitudes that we have towards scripture. When the Hebrews were a, a, a desert-dwelling people, they were coexisting with hundreds of desert-dwelling tribes, 
and they needed apparently to have some kind of civil set of laws that would abet their survival, that would help them survive. So we find all kinds of so-called spiritual laws in the book of Leviticus, for example, which we don't abide by today. We certainly Decent people don't abide by these prohibitions against homosexuality or the oppression of women or stoning to death a virgin on the doorstep of her father's house if she commits some act of impurity. And yet all of this can be found in the book of Leviticus. But we've sort of written it out of our spiritual experience as if, well, you know, the Hebrews didn't really mean that. You know, they meant the other stuff about the, thou shalt not kill and thou shalt not steal. We are constantly cherry-picking from our religious traditions, and I don't think that's necessarily wrong insofar as our religious traditions, while they may contain beautiful truths, they were written at a certain time and place where survival may have depended upon them in some way. They were responding to social circumstances of the time. So I would say that's my critique of the manner in which we Westerners sometimes clip and paste from Vedic concepts and these terms like non-attachment or non-identification come to us very easily, they may not suit our lives in the 21st century. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I just don't want people to feel bound by translations of translations of translations of ancient literature that are many, many centuries removed from their original source. I think we have to be willing to be very open about whether some of these traditions square with our most deeply felt needs. And if they do not square, then I don't feel that we should necessarily be bound by them. This is just another way of saying I want people to feel at liberty to be very unencumbered in their inner search and and when they're facing this question, what, what do I want? Okay, so if any listener's thinking, all right, I'm up for this, I'm ready to give this a try. I mean, where do I start? What am I going to be doing? I mean, in some of the, there's a section in your book where you talk about exercises and practical methods, you know, because this is not, not a reward with no effort scheme. You know, that's, we think we've established that. But aside from, you know, prayers, affirmations, uh, writing things down, really getting your inner life and focus and your desires and your direction in purely practical terms, would you agree that as this is a process of thought becoming reality in whatever form, however that looks, whatever form that takes, that meditation is, is basically the foundational aspect of this? I agree, although there's a certain form of meditation that I practice, and I, I practice this twice a day, almost without fail, and it relates back to something I referenced earlier about this so-called hypnagogic state, a term used by sleep researchers. The state of hypnagogia is a state that all people naturally enter twice in the 24-hour period, both when we're drifting off to sleep at night and when we're coming to in the morning. Some people call the morning state hypnopompia. As little, the qualities are different, but, but it's similar. And it's basically this, that we enter this remarkable, profoundly relaxed, and almost hallucinogenic state, just as we're drifting off to sleep at night. We're physically immobile. Our bodies may even be frozen in a certain sense. We can experience noises, waking dreams, things that aren't necessarily there in the traditional physical sense, but we also maintain control over our cognition. And it just lasts for a few precious 
minutes at night and in the morning. A lot of modern mystical figures, without necessarily using the vocabulary of sleep research or the vocabulary of psychical research, identified that period of time as kind of prime time to use uh, visualizations or affirmations or mantras. And psychical research has demonstrated that that period of time, if you can induce an individual into this state of exquisite, drowsy relaxation without losing cognition, that period of time is shown to, to, to be a period when people undergo spikes in psychical activity or ESP-related activity. I have found that that period of time can be extremely powerful for using your visualizations or affirmations, and it's almost effortless. You don't even have to cross your legs on a cushion. You don't have to set aside a time of day where you close your door. You you enter this state naturally every night just before you drift off, every morning when you come to. My message is use it, use it. Use that precious time of day to experiment with some of the the methods that, that, that you referenced, affirmation, visualization, prayer, concocting mental scenes, even attempting telepathy if you so wish to. See what happens. Uh, make that a study for six months. It's, it's effortless. And uh, that's something that I, I do al- almost without fail twice a day. Now, the issue of being realistic, and I'm putting realistic in the aforementioned single quotes again, does come into play here in a couple of ways. In terms of if anyone's thinking about making a change in their life in whatever aspect or aspects of their life, thinking about uh, skills, abilities, you know, what are your proven strengths? Uh, What have you got can be worked on? This doesn't mean that you can't take a 180 or a 90 degree turn in your life and just become something completely different from what you've been before, but that will still be built upon, you know, your inner skills, abilities, or at least some kind of latent tendencies that can be developed into skills and abilities, if you see what I mean. And in a lot of the popular literature on you know, manifesting, whatever, realism of this flavor seems to like not be on the menu. So yes. it's like, well, if I'm wanting a million dollars to transform my life, why not make it a hundred million dollars or a billion? I mean, it's just zeros at the end of the day. Why not go for that? You know, yes. and if Good I point. want a more exciting career and I'm currently a parking attendant, Instead of thinking, oh, you know, could I do? Could I join the armed forces? You know, could I? I don't know. Could I become an artist? It's like, no, I'm going to become an astronaut. Right. And right. that's possible for some people because we have astronauts. So we can steer or nudge things here, and this fits in with what I was mentioning earlier about the percentage effect that it seems that we can have on these things. Maybe not the quantum leap whereby, you know, you become the Pope or whatever, you know, it happens to be, yeah. um, or I become, I don't know. World's tennis championship. We know how likely these things are at this stage. Yes, this is very important, and this is also something I've been working with uh, personally over the past few months and writing about it. What reaches us is is overwhelmingly likely to reach us through established channels, and this happens again and again in life in all kinds of different settings. And I don't think that metaphysics liberates us from that. That if you want something, like let's say you want a new house. The overwhelming possibility is that that new house is going to reach you through some sort of established channels. There has to be some byway or capillary through which that 
that can reach you. And this is something that chaos magicians have observed, and I, I honor their observation very, very deeply. If you want romance and you're a hermit living in the woods, you have really set yourself a tough road to hoe. It's very, very tough to foresee the established channels through which that would reach you. But if you're circulating in the social world, if you're circulating among different people, you've created those established channels, and suddenly that quantum leap becomes not so quantum that you can't use these mental formulations to perhaps select a different path in your life. And when the arrival occurs, the arrival may occur in ways that we overlook because it can seem so routine, or the arrival might come in ways that are dramatically unexpected while still arriving through some sort of established channel. But if an individual who, say, my age, decides that he wants to become an astronaut, that's overwhelmingly unlikely. I would have a very, very difficult time emotionally persuading myself of the possibility of that. I wouldn't rule it out. I wouldn't rule out the fact that it's quite possible that a figure named Christ walked on water. You know, different metaphysicians and mystics will make reference to Christ walking on water. Uh, Joe Dispenza makes this reference. You know, Joe will say, look, if you absolutely believe that is true, I can't set up an absolute that you wouldn't be able to walk on water. And I would say, well, I agree to an extent, but I also agree that arriving at that place would would require enormous self-development, whereas if you needed to cross water, the far greater likelihood is you'd need a rowboat or something like that. And that rowboat could reach you through some extraordinary set of circumstances, but nonetheless, those circumstances would have to come almost certainly through some sort of established channels. So that's that's one of the ways I approach the question of realism. In that context, one of the things I learned through my study of synchronicity was to pay attention. So in talking about, you know, what you want and what is possible, what your potential is, what is achievable in what time frame, what context, I found with learning about synchronicity was I started to, more so than I was already, to become very observant of inner and outer life. You know, all my feelings and thoughts, desires, emotions that were coerced, did that come from? But start literally in the outside world, seeing as much as possible of what's around me. People, places, things, what are they saying? What's happening? What's moving? What color are things? And then these situations that can play into changes that you might want to bring about you literally see and hear and experience more of them because you're paying attention that might sound incredibly simplistic but these things i think these things are happening all the time you know these things we and we are our thoughts are affecting our reality all the time but it's when you bring it under control to an extent when you become the observer of it then you see hang on now now i can see patterns and it's like well then can i affect the patterns and then you begin to see actually i can yes and 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 it's it's important to be watchful, as you were alluding. It's very important to be watchful because I would counsel people. I would counsel people on the spiritual path. I would counsel people who experiment with magic, with metaphysics, not to dismiss anything out of hand because events that appear in your life could be the very answer to what you're looking for, but sometimes we dismiss them because they seem so routine. For example, 
I would counsel that if you need relief from a problem, like let's say a problem of anxiety, take nothing off the table. Take nothing off the table. Let's say hypothetically, and I'm going to commit the ultimate heresy here within the alternative spiritual culture. Let's say there's a certain pharmaceutical that could wonderfully reduce your anxiety without any terrible side effects. Well, couldn't that pharmaceutical be exactly what you're looking for? It may not be right for everybody. It may not answer certain ultimate questions, but it could be just what you're looking for. And don't dismiss it because it seems conventional or don't dismiss it because it seems somehow unmagical. It could be the delivery of just what you need. You're, it seems to me that the individual is entitled to shape his or her world based on whatever works. And if what works is that meditation relieves your anxiety, that prayer relieves your anxiety, that a, a pharmaceutical or that some sort of a, a natural substance relieves your anxiety or some combination of all these things, that could be the very answer that you're looking for, and it might not have reached you through conventional means. But just because the the thing itself seems conventional, don't dismiss it. Be very watchful. Be very careful. Because sometimes conventional means or very unexpected means could nonetheless be exactly what the individual is looking for. And 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 don't be so sure that those means would have reached you if you hadn't been doing the metaphysical work. The world is very likely to to meet us in familiar ways. Extraordinarily extraordinary things can happen through so called familiar ways, just because the great likelihood is that something is going to reach us through established structures. Well that reminds me of a strangely profound incident in an episode of Family Guy. These Christian science parents, and no offense to any Christian scientists out there, not at all. Not their at all. their child has, has got cancer, and you know if anybody watches Family Guy, will know all the characters yes. involved. And Lois, she ends up kidnapping their child because she's so concerned. And of course, the whole there's a farce that follows. But in the end of it, she's saying she's pleading with them. She's saying this surgery, this is the answer to your prayers to save your child. You know, and then they're suddenly like, oh. Okay, and that might go against everything that Christian science is about. I don't know, but what you said just reminded me of it. It's like, you know, your prayers have been answered, but you're kind of walking over the answers, you know? Yes, yes. And I, I think that's a very important observation. In fact, uh, Anton LaVey, as a magician, as a magical thinker, helped me to understand that. You know, his contention was that, yes, use ceremonial magic. Yes, use ritual. But it's also profoundly important that you allow yourself to participate in and avail yourself of whatever will create the environment that responds to your needs. So he probably would have gotten a great kick out of that episode. And in fact, the, the Christian Science Church is, is undergoing its own internal debate today, as all religions do, as to how it should face the demographic crisis that it, it finds itself confronted with. And it used to be that, you know, there are no barriers uh, doctrinally set up in the Christian Science Church to participating in mainstream medicine. People often think, oh, Christian, science aren't, oh, Christian scientists aren't allowed to use mainstream medicine. It's not exactly the case. They are allowed to. But there's an internal culture in the church that might be more liberal on the question 
another culture that might be more conservative on the question. And those two uh, cultures within the church, and all religions have these divisions, they are uh, experiencing a, a kind of a kind of contest for primacy in 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 terms of attitude, and uh, the church is very private. It's also very small demographically, but there are practitioners who are saying outright that they would never refuse to give prayer treatment to someone who uh, also used mainstream medicine. There are other practitioners who are so profoundly discouraging of mainstream medicine that effectively it's it seems like a doctrinal ban on it but but mrs eddie never said that you can't do it and 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 there's a a a real question facing that church right now is whether they're going to take a more liberal or more conservative attitude theologically uh, towards combining medicine with with prayer treatment okay so just in closing mitch uh, anybody out there if you're interested in anything that we've been talking about, if you want to make some changes in your life, particularly if you're someone who's been dabbling with some of the publications or some of the traditions or ideas that, we, that we've touched upon, get the book. I think you'll like it. But mainly, I would say, act on it. You have to act to act and interact. Put things in place. Move forward. Focus on what, not how that's going to happen. And I love the phrase in your book, one well-formed desire will facilitate others. Yes, I encourage people to arrive at one absolute passionately held aim in life, and it's difficult for us to do that because life places many demands on us. We're workers, we're caregivers, we're parents, we're students, we have lots of things that we need to get done in the world, and yet, echoing what you just said, one well-selected aim can cover a lot of bases. It can revolutionize your life. Don't trifle with it. Be very honest with yourself. If you can focus your attentions and focus your energies on one thing that you want, it may cover a lot of bases. And focusing on one thing can create a lot of power. We see that as a law of nature. Light photons focused or concentrated can become a laser. Uh, water focused and concentrated can become an irresistible force. The same with air, something that we're able to literally push out of the way with our hands when concentrated can become a force of extraordinary power. I believe the same is true with our psyches. So uh, concentration and the selection of one passionately felt aim can bring a great deal of power to our efforts. Lastly, one thing that we touched upon at the top of the hour, but we didn't get to, there just isn't time, it's a huge subject in itself, is how can any of this actually work? In scientific terms, what are the mechanisms? You've got a great section in your book about that at the end. People need to get it. It's entitled The Miracle Club, How Thoughts Become Reality. That's available everywhere. It's been out for a while. Tell listeners about your website, anything you've been publishing or doing recently. You're always so busy, I can barely keep up with it. Yeah, my website is mitchhorowitz.com, and there's articles and links there. People can also find my email there if they want to drop me a line or ask a question. Uh, if you throw my name into Amazon, you'll find lots of different books and lectures and audio programs. A new book that I have out right now is called The Power of Sex Transmutation. It's a very short book, but it deals with some of these questions of how sexuality can be put at the back of some of our uh, mental metaphysics. This is a question that appears in Thinking We're Rich. It's also something that's used by chaos magicians, ceremonial magicians, Kabbalists, Taoists. 
fascinating material and I try to boil it down in a very practical, usable way in this book, uh, The Power of Sex Transmutation. Wonderful, Mitch. Well, once again, thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you. A real pleasure. 